Okay, today we will discuss the first sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya, which is the Mula Pariyaya Sutta, the root of all things. And so since we've been doing suttas from the Majjhima Nikaya over this 10-year period, then it might seem a little peculiar that now, after 10 years, we're taking the first sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya. But there's a reason why I postponed the Mula Pariyaya Sutta until almost the very end of this study of the Majjhima. And that is because this is, I would say, perhaps the most difficult sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya, certainly one of the most difficult within the whole Pali Canon. It's extremely compressed, extremely concise, and without having read many other suttas and have explanations of them, one would not be able to understand the Mula Pariyas. And I think when the early terrors, the elders, were establishing the text of the canon of the Sutta Pitaka, they put the Mula Pariyaya Sutta at the very beginning because of its great profundity and because of its fundamental importance. The expression Mula Pariyaya itself means the exposition of the root. And the root is the foundation or basis, the beginning in the growth of a tree. And so the Mula Pariyaya, we could say, deals with the foundation or fundamentals of the Buddha's teaching. And it's the root, you could say, from which all the other suttas in the Majjhima Nikaya unfold. But because it's so concise, so compressed, it's extremely difficult to understand. Okay, now the commentary gives a little background story which explains the circumstances under which the Buddha spoke the sutta. Sometimes the stories from the commentaries are, I'd say, not completely credible, but still I will relate this, because it maybe helps to make clear a rather strange phrase that comes at the very end of the sutta. According to the commentary, there were 500 Brahmins who were scholars of the Vedas. And somehow they came across, heard the Buddha preach, and they gained some confidence in his teaching. And they decided to give up their Brahmanism and go forth as bhikkhus, become Buddhist monks. After their ordination, then they applied themselves very diligently to the study of the Buddha's teachings, the Buddha Bhachana. And since they were from the Vedic, the Vedic tradition, they had very, very sharp memories, very, very... They learned texts very easily, they could bear them in mind, and they knew various methodologies for explaining texts. And so they became very learned, just as they had been learned in the Vedas, so they became very learned in the suttas spoken by the Buddha. But because they became learned, 
they also fell into the trap that comes with great learning, that is, pride or conceit. They became proud and thought that they had mastered so many discourses of the Buddha that they could explain them grammatically and in terms of their meaning and interconnections. And so they felt that they no longer had anything more to learn from the Buddha. And they didn't show any humility towards the Buddha. They didn't come to pay homage to him, to attend on him. They didn't join the Sangha when the Buddha would be giving additional discourses. And so the Buddha taught, the Buddha realized that these monks, these Brahmin monks, had the potential to reach arahatship, but that potential was covered over by this layer of pride and conceit. And so the Buddha spoke, according to the commentary, addressed the Mulapariyaya Sutta, especially to this group of monks, in order to break their pride and conceit. He wanted to give them a sutta which would be so difficult, so profound, that they would realize that there were some things that they just didn't understand. And then once they became humbled, then they would open up to instruction and be willing to learn and to practice the teaching. Okay, that is the background teaching, the background story. Okay, now the sutta opens when the Buddha was living in a place called Ukkata, at the foot of a royal side tree. Okay, then he addresses the monks and he says, I will teach you a discourse on the root of all things. That itself is a very profound statement. Even with this phrase alone, the Buddha underscores the importance of this discourse. This is not going to be a discourse dealing with trifling matters, but rather with very fundamental, very basic, basic cause or basic root of all phenomena. This will be an exposition of the very root, you could say, of worldly existence. A sutta which exposes the foundations of samsara and how samsara sustains, is sustained through our own mental activity. And in this sutta, the Buddha will explain the mental processes, what we can call the cognitive patterns of four types of individuals, four types who include amongst them all individuals. These four types will be the worldling, the uninstructed worldling. It's called the putujin. A sutta bhaktujin, then the trainee or learner, the person who has reached some level of awakening to the Dhamma, some level of insight into the Dhamma, 
from the minimal level of stream entry, but is still cultivating to reach the final goal. Then the third type of person is the arahant, the one who has completed the development of the path. And the fourth is the Tathagata, the Buddha himself, who is the founder of the teaching. The Buddha will explain how the thought patterns of these individuals function in regard to 24 bases of, or objects of cognition. 24 objects of thought. Okay, he begins with the uninstructed worldling. He describes, he has a sort of stock description of this person. Here, because an untaught, ordinary person who has no regard for the noble ones and is unskilled and undisciplined in their dhamma, who has no regard for the true men, sappurisa, and is unskilled and undisciplined in their dhamma, perceive, first I'll read this whole statement, then we'll take it up for a more detailed explanation, perceives earth as earth. Having perceived earth as earth, he conceives earth. I'll just omit what's put into brackets. He conceives earth, he conceives in earth, he conceives from earth, he conceives earth as mine, he delights in earth. Why is that? Because he has not fully understood it, I say. Okay, this is the basic statement in describing the thought pattern of the world. This will be repeated in each of the following passages. But now each of these phrases is extremely... contains an extreme... each of these phrases is extremely compressed and contains a great amount of meaning. So we have to examine each phrase to pull out, to extract the meaning. First, the Buddha says, he perceives earth as earth. The Pali goes, Pattavin Pattavito Sanjanati. And so the verb here, Sanjanati, indicates that the subject of this cognitive act is sanya, or perception. So first we have perception. Now if we just take the description in the text at its face value, it seems that the Buddha is speaking about somebody who perceives things as they really are. It says he perceives earth as earth. But in fact, if one understands sort of the intention of the sutta and also relying on the helpful commentary, the explanation of the commentary, what we can realize that what is being indicated here is not an accurate perception 
but rather a distorted perception, a perception which grasps the object superficially, we can say, or grasps it, perceives it, just in terms of superficial appearances. The technical term that's used for this is a distorted perception. A perception which is distorted and also distorting because it distorts the object and doesn't represent it as it truly is. In other suttas, the Buddha speaks of four distortions, which in Pali it's the vipalasas. These are distortions which enter into perception and affect perception so that we perceive things exactly opposite to the way they really are. The four distortions are the distortion of taking what is really impermanent to be permanent, taking what is really dukkha, unsatisfactory or suffering, to be a source of pleasure and happiness, taking what is insubstantial or not-self to be a self, and taking what is really impure or unattractive to be beautiful and attractive. Okay, now these distortions become manifest or operate at three different levels. The Buddha speaks of them as affecting perception, thought, and view. In Pali that's sanya, citta, and ditti. The most basic distortion is in perceiving. That is, we perceive things to be, for example, pleasant and beautiful. Then we start thinking of things based on our perception. Right? So we start by thinking, taking the perceptions to be accurate, not examining the perceptions, but just accepting them at face value. Then we start thinking in terms of them, and then eventually we arrive at a fixed view in terms of these perceptions. To take a sort of concrete example how this works, I won't take it in terms of the four vipalasas, but in terms of something maybe much more commonplace or say a familiar <laughs> type of experience. This is discrimination based on things like nationality, race, caste. So people, say of one race, perceive somebody from a different race. For example, in America there's a lot of tension between white people and black people. So white people often have the idea that black people are dangerous, um, violent, and so if they see in the city streets, if the white person sees a black person, then he has a perception of the black person, and that perception maybe will be infected with fear because he perceives the idea, or he has an idea that 
black people are violent and dangerous. Okay, then he'll start thinking in terms of when he sees the black person, immediately there registers this perception of some danger or fear. Then he'll start thinking about this, and so he'll imagine everything that the black person is doing is in some way a threat to him. Even if the person is just innocently walking down the street, but he will imagine that it's some act of aggression directed against him. And then, if he continues to think in terms of these biases, then he'll form a fixed view that black people are violent and dangerous. And then once he forms a view, then it becomes very difficult to eradicate or to change that view. For example, there was an incident that I heard on the radio just a few days ago. There was some months, there was, uh, some months ago, some policeman was sent into a city to, I think it was in Michigan, to deal with some immigrant from the West Indies. These are black people. There was some suspicion that he was making mischief, and when they went to catch him, he went to reach for his wallet. And when he took out his wallet, they perceived it, because they had the idea that black people are dangerous. They perceived it as a gun. And so they started shooting him till he was killed with 41 bullets. It was just an accident. They didn't really, or at least according to the judgment in the trial, they didn't maliciously intend to harm him, but their distorted, perception, rooted, connected with this fixed view, led them to perceive his act of reaching for his wallet as pulling out a gun, and so they opened fire and killed him. Okay, so this is how an example, just a concrete example, of how a distorted perception, when it's reinforced by thought, culminates in a view, and because of that view, this will also in turn condition perception so that what we perceive conforms to our view, to our view. Okay, now what is responsible for these distorted perceptions are the underlying tendencies of the defilements in the mind, we call the anusias, the latent tendencies. Okay, this is all somewhat difficult, but we try to make it concrete. The basic defilements are lust, hatred, and delusion. Okay, now each of these basic defilements underlies a particular type of distortion in perception. It is through the underlying tendency of lust, especially sensual lust, that things present themselves as being beautiful and pleasurable. In the structure of the Buddha's teaching, of course, I think the main target of this analysis is sexual desire, sensual desire because one has this underlying, this 
deeply rooted instinctual tendency coming down through beginningless time for sexual desi- sexual desire. This is what keeps the <laughs> human race alive, which has kept all forms of animal life alive through beginningless time. This this underlying tendency to lust conditions perception in such a way that we perceive the physical body as being attractive and beautiful and we perceive indulging in sensual pleasures as being a true source of happiness. So in this way, sensual lust conditions the perception of beauty or attractiveness and the perception of pleasure. The underlying tendency to aversion or to hatred, this conditions our perception in such a way that we regard certain things which are obstructions to our personal fulfillment as being repugnant or repulsive. This is not one of the four distortions, but it's also mentioned in the suttas, but called patika nimitta, the sign or appearance of things as being repulsive. Sometimes one has this with certain people. Maybe it can be a person one has never met before, but for some reason, maybe through some impressions, (coughs) buried impressions from childhood memories, maybe even because of encounters in a past life, we're at a gathering, a meeting, somebody walks in, we've never seen him before, but that person just rubs us the wrong way and immediately there comes some kind of feeling of dislike for that person. There's no rational explanation for it, but it just occurs through some kind of projection of this deeply rooted defilement of ill will or aversion. And then once that impression of something unpleasant in that person, something irritating, begins to brew in the mind, then everything that person does will become a a source of annoyance. The way the person sits down. (laughs) Why can't he sit the way other people sit? Why does he have to pull the chair out? roughly and plump himself down in the seat. If we happen to be sitting at a dinner party with that person, the way he grabs the food and puts it into his mouth is annoying. When he opens his mouth and starts speaking, everything he says (laughs) seems to be wrong. And yet the person might be speaking just in a very indifferent way. He's not deliberately doing anything to annoy us, but it's just that there is some deep underlying tendency to resentment in our mind. We have had no conflict with this person, but projection is taking place so that our own aversion, our own animosity projects itself through the perception and it seems that this person is behaving inappropriately in everything that he does. Everything he says is wrong and our assessment of his personality, our character, will inevitably be negative.
Don't we all have people like that? <laughs> okay, so this is the way the underlying tendency to aversion affects perception in such a way that we perceive things as being repulsive, annoying, or irritating. Then the underlying tendency to ignorance or delusion, this is what causes the perception of permanence, the idea that things are permanent, stable and lasting, that we will, that we ourselves are stable and lasting. And it's also the underlying tendency to ignorance which causes us to grasp our combination of these five aggregates and take them to be a self, a real self. I have to admit I have some trouble personally understanding how there can be a perception of permanence and selfhood which is different from a view of permanence and selfhood. Certainly I would say the, per the perception of permanence, I don't think it is the perception that we all have naturally of things as being like solid and stable. Because I would imagine that say an arahant who's completely uprooted all of these, all ignorance and defilements, when he looks at a table or a glass, he doesn't see it in his ordinary consciousness as being impermanent, rising and falling away moment by moment when he's, say, sitting at a table having a conversation, then he'll see the table, the glass, other people as being stable. He won't be saying them in terms of this momentary arising and passing away. Okay, so just to sum up this part, we say that, okay, the underlying tendency, the anusia of sensual lust, this is the basis or root, we can say, of the perception of things as being beautiful and pleasurable. And here, when I say things as beautiful, I don't mean that it's seeing nature as being beautiful or getting inspiring views of sunsets, but it's especially the perception of physical bodies as being beautiful and sensually attractive. The underlying tendency of hatred this is the root for the perception of things and people as being repulsive or irritating and annoying. And the underlying tendency of delusion or ignorance, this is the strong root for the perception of things as being permanent and for the perception of ourselves as having a true permanent self. Now these distorted perceptions in turn reinforce the defilements. It's a kind of vicious cycle because when we perceive when we perceive things as being attractive and pleasurable then lust will arise in an active form and overpower the mind. 
even though the perception of pleasure and beauty arises from the underlying tendency of lust. So we have the underlying tendency conditions the perception and the perception acts as a kind of spark that ignites the active defilement, that ignites the defilement and thereby stimulates the arising of active sensual lust. Similarly, the perception of somebody as being irritating or annoying because of this underlying tendency of aversion. Okay, there's the underlying tendency of aversion. That conditions the perception of, say, certain people as being irritating or annoying. And when we perceive people in that way, then they will provoke our anger and ill will. So this person who doesn't sit down properly, who eats his food in a way that annoys us, it seems to us that it's not our fault that, he, that we're feeling irritation. It seems that it's all his fault, but in fact it is our own underlying tendencies which project the perception, and then that perception in turn provokes our anger and hatred. And then the underlying tendency of ignorance brings the perception of permanence and self, and that turns around and reinforces the ignorance so that we become trapped into accepting views and beliefs that there is some permanent realm of existence in which we will be able to live forever with our permanent selves. Okay, so when the Buddha says that the worldling here, the uninstructed, ordinary person, perceives earth as earth, what is meant is that he perceives earth in terms of one of these, of a distorted perception, a perception in which there's already a tendency to see, to project the ideas of pleasure or happiness, beauty, permanence, and selfhood. Maybe if there's any questions based on this much. I would say at this level it is becoming active. And though the sutta doesn't mention it, I would say that before this perception, say, of earth as earth arises, there occurs a more basic perception, which is just a purely passive perception of the object. This is at the most simplest stage of perception, even before the mind starts to work with the perception. There's just a direct registration of the object. But it is immediately after that direct registration of the object that these underlying tendencies start to infiltrate the mind and then the perception becomes very slightly distorted. Not yet a clear and distinct distortion, 
but a very slight distortion. And it is that very slight distortion that is being indicated by this phrase, he perceives earth as earth. And here by earth, the Buddha is beginning now with the series of objects of his analysis. And he begins by taking the four elements, the four primary elements, earth, water, air, and fire. And so this can be understood in various ways. I would say first and most basically, we will apply to the four elements that make up our own physical body and also the four elements that make up the objects of the outer world. These are the four Mahabhuta, Mahabhutas, the great primary elements, which are the basis of all material phenomena. But also, according to the commentary, this can apply to the elements which are apprehended in meditation, in the jhanas, when one takes one of the casinas as an object, the earth casina, water casina, fire casino, or air casino. Because even when a worldly, when a whirling is doing meditation on one of the casinas, one of the elements, then these distortions will also influence the way he perceives the object of meditation. When he gets the earth image, the water image, the fire image, the air image in his jhanic meditation, he will misinterpret this object in terms of the distortion. Even though there's about 10 minutes left, but I don't want to launch now into manyana, since that takes maybe about a half an hour to explain. If I start it now, then I wouldn't be able to complete the explanation within the time allotted to us. So I think it's better take it up the topic of manyana, conceiving, take the beginning of a class and then devote the entirety of the next class to this topic. Okay, if there's any questions, uh, just about this first part, yeah. The texts don't speak about a distortion of vinyana per se, though the commentaries will say, what I call thought here, this is citta in Pali. They will say citta is vinyana, and therefore that there's also distortion of vinyana. Okay, now the relation of sanya to vinyana. Okay, it seems vinyana is used in the text in two ways. Vinyana, which is active consciousness. Consciousness on an occasion of an active... Well, an, act, an active... <laughs> the vinyana which is functioning on an act of consciousness when one is perceiving or aware of some form, sound, smell, taste, touch or thought of mental object. There is vinyana which is the basic consciousness that I would call the awareness of an object. And within that awareness 
there is sanya, perception. Perception is the mental factor which selects those aspects of an object which are to be focused upon, selected out and to appear in the forefront of the attention. Okay, so vijnana within an active cognition, an active awareness, vijnana is what contributes the basic awareness of an object. It's vijnana which underlies all of the other mental functions. Then within that active awareness, sanya is the factor which we say selects, discriminates, focuses upon particular aspects in order to highlight them and sing, single them out and make possible a, we say, a categorizing of an object or a recognition of an object. Let us say, when you meet a person for the first time, okay, just being aware of the person, that awareness which makes possible a knowing of the person, that is vijnana. Then sanya is what selects the particular aspects of that person so that one gets a composite picture of who that person is, what he looks like. And by doing this, sanya serves as the basis for recognition, since when you see the same person again, you immediately recognize that is so-and-so. You're able to recognize the person as so-and-so because sanya on that earlier occasion had selected those particular distinctive features of the person and so use them as the mark of re for recognition. Okay, that is vijnana. I said that there's two functions of vijnana. One is vijnana which functions as the sixfold sense consciousness. Vijnana is also used with reference to the underlying continuity of experience which persists throughout the course of a single life and which goes on from life to life. That is the life carrier. We call it the life carrier, yeah. yeah. Though it's more the carrier of mentality, one could say. But the life carrier, that comes to an end with the end of a particular lifespan. But it's consciousness which goes on, which migrates, you could say, speaking a little metaphorically, from life to life. The consciousness is not a single entity like a self or a soul. It's always changing. But there is a continuity of consciousness. And that continuity of consciousness is what preserves the, you say, the continuity of experience, the continuity of personal identity. So one could say, in a relative sense, that I was this person last life, maybe three lives ago, when the Buddha speaks about, uh, in the, at the end of the Jataka stories, at that time I was the wise monkey. Then it's the 
the continuum of consciousness which is shared by the monkey in that past life and himself now which preserves their personal identity. Okay, that consciousness must also be accompanied by perception, but they function at a very subliminal level, not the same as the consciousness functioning in our own active day-to-day experience, waking experience. Does that answer the question? Yeah, that comes in Visuddhima. I have to say, I don't really agree very much with that. They say, okay, but... Okay, they say that is perception, that it's, I think, perception when you see the gold coin, when the child sees the gold coin, he just sees it as a glittering, bright, glittering object. That is perception. A mature person sees it as value, as value, a unit of currency that he could use to acquire goods. And then a, a wise person sees that the gold is an Icha Dukkha Anatta, right? Is that the right thing? It says that's the Panya, yeah. Sanya far more as a base primitive kind of consciousness almost, which we can find if we are thinking about the Darwinism of the mind, we can find that even in love there is that Sanya in the Mimosa, because otherwise she cannot uh, react to us. So here is something Sanya, we find probably also Vedana to a certain degree, we find those other things which are making up mentality. And here Sanya is a kind of very rough kind of cognition. Of course, according to like the orthodox Abhidhamic system, they would say there's no perception, no feeling in the plan. Because if there's perception of feeling, then there's vinyana consciousness. Yeah, and if there's consciousness, if one kills a plant, then one is killing a living being. Ah, that is a practical... Yeah. Uh, but it seems to me that there, there is some kind of very basic sensitivity oh yes, must within plants. Also these plants are, are, are coming out from by, by a certain tanna, uh, no? I would even extend it to the level of electrons. They all have that, no? Basically, I think these Bhavatana, Kamatana, Vibhavatana, we will find that probably also in the, in the quantum uh, mechanics and, and some things. These are I want to just come back to the question. Uh-huh. It seems to me that Perception and consciousness, you could have it many different levels. One just can't assign perception to the, to, you say, the mental activity of a child, vinyana consciousness to the level of an ordinary mature man, and panya to the work of insight meditation. 
but you have perception and vinyana at all of these different levels as well. I understand far more that simile to be in connection with the attitudes towards. Yeah. So the child, the little child who has the pleasure of the glittering gold and uh, has a beautiful attitude, he drops it somewhere. Then the, that cleverness and already mind which has to fight for his existence, he knows uh, what he can get for that piece of gold, how he can manipulate and drive himself through life with his power. And then the mint master, no, he is of course childlike, he drops the coin by knowing all what is inside. So I understand it far more as a simile towards our development than uh, a simile of what Samya, uh, regarding Samya. Yeah, also I disagree, I, I disagree with the way it characterizes Vinyana. It seems to me vijnana is present in every type of mental process. Not, not the case that, and I don't see anything in the suttas to indicate that vijnana performs some functioning of evaluating or appreciating the, the value of things, the way it, the way that stimuli or, or that example from the Visuddhimagga describes the function of vijnana. Vinyana and perception, they're not uh, the same thing that is interchangeable. Vinyana and perception perception are Perception is always an extension of Vinyana. You can't, basically, you cannot perceive consciousness, or you cannot perceive Vinyana. I think one should be able to perceive Vinyana. But let's say Vinyana and perception are always associated, but they're not identical. As no, I understand they're not it, it's they're not thing. interchangeable, no. Perce- vijnana provides the basic awareness that's functioning through the sense faculty, which makes, opens up, which makes available the world of objects through that sense faculty. So it's, for example, through eye consciousness that all forms become accessible to us. But it is perception, sanya, which singles out characteristics, features of a particular form as a basis for identification and recognition. Itemizing, that's a good word. Without valuation. We take green and blue and red without valuation. That later Vidyana is doing the uh, juggling with these. Evaluation, that I would say, is a much more complex. So complex, but it is free of these. It takes blue and blue and red as red and up as up and down as down, but without making a story of it. Okay, I think we should stop now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.